The Parable of the Rich Fool Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. As a married couple, Nellie and I haven't prioritised the career. We've both been trained at uni in order to get jobs that would be more career-focused rather than just paying the bills, and worked hard to get where we are and have a good working reputation, but we've never really been ones for chasing the high-paying job or the sparkly lights. Obviously, happy to get pay rises and the like, but not joining in the rat race as much as possible. A case in point is the fact that we decided early on that Nellie was going to stay home with the kids, which has even developed into homeschooling them too. This obviously means we are still a one-income family, and we've been quite comfortable with this way of living. Nellie and I were living in Auckland when we got married, and when we started looking to buy our first home, it became evident very quickly that if we wanted to stay in Auckland, we would have to compromise our desire for Nellie to be a stay-at-home mum. So we moved. We left what we knew to make our desire manageable. In Hamilton, we bought a nice home with a great section for the kids. Very 70s decor, but beautiful nonetheless. We had our kids in this home, but eventually the financial pressure reared its ugly head again. Once more, we were faced with the decision to cave into the desire for nice things and a beautiful home or to stick to our guns and be free to keep Nellie at home with the kids. So we moved again. Each move was into both a more affordable area and a downgrade of a house. We are now living in Halcombe, in a home that aesthetically is quite upsetting. <laughs> if someone who didn't know who sorry, if someone who didn't know us saw where we were living and the state of the house in which we dwell, they would no doubt assume that we were poor. Ironically, in all of this going against the grain and not keeping up with the Joneses, we're in the best position we've ever been in. We are far richer in all senses of the word because we have chosen to be poorer materialistically. Nellie told me of a prayer Noah, our son, had before bed one night. Thank you, God, for our beautiful home, he said. Now, as a five-year-old boy who has not been exposed to the culture or social pressure that would determine the beauty of a house, we suspect that the aesthetic was not what he's referring to, especially because the house is hideous at the moment. <laughs> Rather, the beautifulness that he's talking about is the joy that comes with us all being together in it. And this is a result of the intentionality to downgrade 
in the midst of the desire to upgrade and have more and better things. When we got to the Manawatu, I had a boss who was very well off. He'd worked very hard, and before he was 40, he and his wife had managed to own several rental properties of their own, and several more with a business partner. As well as, sorry, as well as having built his own home, only to build a bigger one and move into that a couple of times over. He was always getting all the toys and flash gizmos, and enjoyed his ability to do so. After working with him and chatting throughout the day, his values began to rub off on me. And as he got more in my head, and tapped into that desire that's in all of us, that is always craving more, or the next big thing, I began to take these views home, and got in Nelly's head. And we started planning on how we too could start the same mogul empire. It's in all of us though, isn't it? This innate craving for more? John Rockefeller, who was once the richest man in the world, was asked at the time, how much money is enough? And he calmly replied, just a little bit more. And that makes him sound greedy to one extent, but think about it. When that new phone comes out or is even advertised, suddenly you see all the issues with your current one, or the car or clothes or the game or console, you name it. It's in all of us. Adam and Eve had everything, all their needs met. Walking with God in the garden. But that inkling inside to crave the one thing they didn't have. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The trouble is, we're very good at justifying our actions. We can make our sins look like nothing and scapegoat those sins. Covetousness we call ambition. Hoarding we call prudence. Greed we call industry. John Mark Homer says that's why Mammon is the only God Jesus mentions by name. Because it has a very real grip on us, and we often don't see it, because it's just the norm. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that's a scary thought when you actually think about it. What is your treasure? I remember years ago hearing a sermon about priorities, and he had a pretty cool visual analogy. You may have seen it yourself, but it's pretty clear, so I'm, I'm going to try and explain it without the props. He started off with one jar, and then there were two rocks. The jar represented your life. The rocks represented God and prayer and Bible reading, anything that would fit into that context. And there was a pile of pebbles. These were your daily needs, like going to work and paying the bills. And finally, a pile of sand. Your sand was your hobbies and the fun things, the spice of life. He proceeded to fill this jar with the sand first. This, even Jesus said, after all, we should live life and live it to the fullest. So the jar is half full with just the sand in it. He then proceeds to pour all the pebbles into the jar. Because you need to fund that fun life, right? Suddenly the jar is full. And what is not inside? The rocks. His point there is that if we do not prioritize God and put him at the center of our life, then he just inevitably ends up not being in it at all. I think we can all say that from time to time we've been there. 
we can be well-intentioned to wake up early in the morning and have some quiet time, but we sleep in. Then suddenly you're sorting the kids for school and you're getting ready for work yourself. You're at work all day, you come home, sorting the kids, dinner, bed. Now you're tired and you need to spend time with your wife or husband. And before you know it, you're in bed and you're back asleep. Where was God in that day? He then moves on to a second jar, and he puts the rocks in first, followed by the pebbles, because they will fill in all the gaps around the rocks, and finally the sand, which fills in all the gaps around the pebbles too. Admittedly, you miss out on some of the sand, but the argument there would be that the joy you get from having God in your life will make up for the loss of the other side. Now, I would argue that we all actually, in our lives, whether we include God or not, live our lives like the second jar. So the question I want to ask is, what are the rocks in your jar? Because the world is screaming at us all day, everywhere we look, trying to make this thing or that thing the rocks in your jar. And if you really think hard, or sometimes you may not need to think hard at all, What are the rocks in your life? Not what would you like the rocks to be, but what actually are the rocks? Now I don't mean this as a guilt trap, not by any stretch. God is a God of grace, and at Korimako we want to extend that grace. But this just sneaks and leaks into us. Just like all my conversations with that boss, he was redefining the rocks that were in my jar. Were they God? Or were they this lust for more money and materialism. Ecclesiastes 1.3 says, What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Now Ecclesiastes is a rather depressing read to be fair, and there's a lot in there, but there is truth to this little segment. We can bust a gut to gain and gain, and we can justify why we're right in doing so, but what is it all for? After all, like Jesus said in the passage at the start, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And we don't really know what lies ahead. Man makes his plans, but the Lord guides his steps. If that's the case, then, methinks we should heed Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Keep God as the rocks in your jar. I met a man at work called John the other month. He's currently working in Wellington, but he used to be up here, and I discovered he was known as Sparrow by his workmates. Turns out it's because he ate very little, much like a sparrow. But what I found interesting was the reason he ate so little. It was not necessarily because of his appetite, rather because he was just so tight He hated spending his money. He could have very small and cheap meals to ensure he saved his pennies. Even when he did occasionally branch out and go out to a restaurant or a bar, he would make himself food at home before he went, in order to make himself full so he didn't eat too much while he was out, and therefore he could save more money. Sparrow was content with the food he has had, because of a greater cause that he had. Contentedness 
breaks the cycle of needing more. If you are satisfied with what you have, why do you need anything else? You cannot be sucked into the rat race if you have a content heart. You're a non-starter in the rat race. You cannot want just a little bit more, as Rockefeller stated, if what you have is enough. In Philippians, Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The art of living a content life is living a simple life. So what is a simple life? Joshua Becker describes simplicity as the intentional promotion of things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. This may come across a bit too extreme or edgy, but the reality is we serve the God of the universe who sent his son to die for us so we could be in relationship with him. Wouldn't you want to remove any distractions from that opportunity? In the secular world, simplicity is known as minimalism, and is actually taken up as quite a popular practice, living free of clutter and therefore a life of less stress. Clean house, clean head is a phrase that's thrown around quite a bit. And what's cool is that there's a lot of evidence in psychological circles that show the health benefits of living simply. I love it when science comes up with a new breakthrough idea only to find that Jesus recommended it all along. It's so satisfying. Like fasting. How cool of God to make something that was intended for us to be a loving and dedicated sacrifice to him that doubles back as a physical and spiritual health boost for us. God is good. Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist and he talks a lot about chaos and order and the mental benefits that that has for us. But he also makes the connection, as many other scholars do too, that in Genesis, God takes the chaos that is pre-creation and he orders it into something that is good. With the fall and then the flood, it returns to chaos. But as the flood recedes, which mirrors the creation story, God brings order again. Peterson makes the point that we are made in his image. We are made to be beings that create order wherever we go and to keep the chaos at bay. Simplicity is one of the ways of creating order, and or removing the chaos. So not only does our earthly treasure distract us from our heavenly focus, but if your treasure is in heaven, our earthly treasures actually lose their grip on us, and actually free us to serve Jesus better. If we focus on Jesus well, by default we end up removing the distractions, just like Joshua Becker described. So maybe it wasn't so extreme and edgy after all. Although simplicity may look like having less things so that life is less full and busy and distracted, it can also be loosening your grip on your things which allows you to live a freer, more generous life. Richard Foster says simplicity is choosing to leverage time, money, talents and possessions towards what matters most. Now as I understand it from this perspective, it's like using what you already have and redirecting it to your main thing, to whatever your rocks are. If we're trying to be apprentices of Jesus, then he is the main thing we want to aim our resources at. To be rich towards God, as we read in Luke at the beginning. 
I forget who he credits it to, but in a sermon from John Mark Homer, he describes freedom in quite a profound way, in that there are two stages of desire. Stage one is the stuff our flesh wants, like things and food and money, typically any of the things that would tempt us. And the second stage is our deeper desires, like our desire to regularly read our Bibles or enter into prayer. This scholar argues that true freedom is found in stage two desires, because we are actually enslaved to the stage one desires, like addiction. The decision is not in choosing to do stage one desires, rather choosing not to. Stage one desires tend to just happen to us, and stage two desires need to be committed to and are harder to attain. You won't find someone who's addicted to Bible reading or solitude with God. You have to practice those things. Whereas you can be addicted to any stage one desire, like junk food or lusts or TV. Freedom doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. Freedom is to be free and not in slavery. Stage one desire, sorry, a stage one desire for Nellie and I is to have a beautiful home with nice things in it. But a stage two desire we share is to live simply and be content without that. We have freedom in Christ to be generous and break the bondage chains of materialism and greed or our worry that things won't be provided for. Jesus tells us not to worry and to trust in him for all our needs because he will provide like he did for a single mum who was struggling that Nellie saw on Facebook. She had just managed to get into the, a rental with her kids and had not much more than the clothes they were wearing. Nellie put it to our home group um, and we rallied together and we were able to give them a trailer and van load of things to help them find their feet. Everyone was keen to help and the family was so blessed by all that they had received. If we had counted the cost of what we gave away and shied away from giving, this family would have suffered. And really, we would have too. Because even on a selfish level, everyone was keen to be able to get rid of some of the accumulated stuff. It takes up more than just floor space, but mental space. And when it takes up heart space, that's when it's a real issue. We were able to live in the freedom of releasing our things for the kingdom, and not hold on to them because of the fear of the cost. Richard Foster says, a carefree, unconcerned for possessions is what marks life in the kingdom. Francis Chan was a megachurch pastor in America, and he felt called to live at the average American wage, and not to be flashy and wealthy like some of his contemporaries. He and his wife enjoyed their simple life, free of a lot of the materialistic trimmings, but also desired to be generous. He prayed for God to raise up rich people in his church who could be generous and serve the poor in their community. But then added to the end of those prayers, if there's no one else, just raise me up so I can be generous. He then went on to write a couple of books. Before he had them published, he set up a trust and had a friend to be the trustee. The purpose of this was so that no matter what happened to his books, whether they failed or smashed it, all the profits would go to the trust and out to the needs in the community. His books smashed it. They made millions of dollars, and 100% of the profits went to the poor and needy in his community. First Timothy 6.6 6 tells us, 
but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. Francis didn't want wealth for his own gain. He was content. He wanted wealth so he could further God's kingdom. If he wasn't content, he could have kept half the profits and still given away 50%, and that would have been a beautiful and generous act. People would have still been impressed with that. I would have. He could have got away with that. But he didn't. He was content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. To live a contented life is by default to live a simple life. They go hand in hand, like two sides of the same coin. The simple life is also a generous life. Uncomplicate your life by cho choosing to start letting go. Clean your garage or that cupboard or whatever. Start small or you will get overwhelmed and give up. Baby steps. Can I set you a challenge for the weeks ahead? Pick a room or cupboard in your home and sort the contents of that room into three piles. Give, keep, and maybe. I think it's pretty obvious what you're going to do with the first two piles, but with the maybe pile, put it in a bag or a box and leave it somewhere. Leave it for three to six months. At the end of that set time, open the box again and put the contents into the keep or give piles as you did before. The time without it could be enough to confirm that it should stay in your home or free you from it to release it. Give them away to people who need them. If you're finding it hard to release it, seeing someone else's joy upon receiving it will make it seem worthwhile. And God will bless this. Intentionally limit your choices. Do you really need that many shoes, or toys, or clothes? Nellie and I have done a few declutters in our marriage, because stuff just creeps back in. We cling to these things while we have them, and wonder how we could do life without them, but once they're gone, they're gone. And I honestly could barely tell you what we've gotten rid of over the years. Things just don't matter. Do a budget of your life. Not necessarily to get rid of things, though I personally would recommend that, but just to effectively take a stock of your time, money, resources and skills, and see where they're pointing. What are the rocks in your jar? The goal with all of this is to free you from the perception that we need our things, to loosen our grip. After all, as Billy Graham said, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Your belongings won't be following you to the grave. Jesus tells us it's better to give than to receive. He doesn't say we have to give people new things that no one else has owned. And it doesn't even have to be confined to birthdays or celebrations. If you see a need, and you have the means, then give. You won't miss what you give away, and you will be blessed for it. The contented life is a simple life, and the simple life is a generous life. On another practical level, if you have less things, there are less things to clean. If there are less things to clean, you have more time available. If you have more time available, then depending on what you fill it with, you are freer and have more capacity for something that really matters. Maybe as Clint mentioned last week, this freed up time could be spent delving deeper into the scriptures that anchor us. Like the rock and the rapids in the story he talked about. 
On that note, I would argue that simplicity as a life practice could actually lessen the intensity of the rapids themselves. If your goal is to get more, you will never get enough. But if your goal is to get Christ, you will always have enough. If your goal is to get more, you will never get enough. But if your goal is to get Christ, you will always have enough. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Lord. In this Rhythms of Grace series that we're running through, like Nick has mentioned, we are giving an overview of some of the practices Jesus had in place that we want to try and make part of our lives. Now, like I say, this is just an overview. Simplicity is not just about material things, though it's as good a place as starting to start as any. It's a lifestyle. Busyness can get in the way of genuine commitment to Jesus. Nick talked about some of the struggles of finding time for solitude with the Lord and how even good things in their own right can be distractions. Now these aren't have-to-dos to be a good Christian. Jesus rebukes legalism. These are helpful habits we find in Jesus' life. After all, our ultimate goal is to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what he does. And these rhythms are some of the things we see in Scripture that Jesus did. So we just want to invite and encourage you to do them with us. Jesus lived a simple life, free of any ties to possessions or even places. He gave freely of his time and energy and was not restricted by the need to hold on to his things or keep up appearances. After being lured into the rat race again by the conversations with that boss, Nellie and I ended up waking up to the ways we'd been sucked into the primal desire for more, and God reminded us of the simple fact that there is no end to the rat race. The idea of a perpetual striving for an ever-moving finish line was just not appealing. Now we by no means are perfect, and are still working through this as a couple. But we try to have not much stuff. When we moved house, we borrowed a truck from work. And the guys were teasing me because our houseload of things took up maybe one third of the truck. One of the definite perks of simple living. Walking over to the girl guides hall the other week, one of the kids asked me, Why do you always wear the same clothes? I said, Because they're comfy. <laughs> I don't have many clothes. And even what I have, I barely wear half of it. Now, in all honesty, we got into this for mental health reasons. Clean house, clean head, like I said before. But the more Nellie looked into it, and the more we talked about it, the more we kept seeing Jesus in it. He calls us to let go of everything and follow him. It's easier to let go of things if you don't have them to start with. He himself didn't have a place to rest his head like the foxes and the birds did, but he had God, and he had people, and his basic needs were met. Now we may not be rich by Western standards, but we are richer than the kings that live before us. We may not have all the fancy toys and gizmos, but we have relationships, and friends with toys and gizmos. We too have God, people, and our basic needs met. So we try to hold a loose grip on our things, because that's all they are, as things. We try to live simply, so we can be generous, and have time available, 
like Jesus, was generous and always available.